Amen. So now we rewind back to the beginning, and this morning focus in on what I believe to be, for me, very clearly the key verse, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Let me ask you a question. How many do-it-yourselfers out there? Any hands raised? Renaissance man or renaissance woman? Well, I happen to be a renaissance man or try to be a do-it-yourselfer. So when I was going into ministry, I thought I better had learned some auto mechanics and some home improvement, sheetrock, et cetera, et cetera, some plumbing. And so it's no surprise that when I discovered for the fourth time uh, a fairly significant leak in our, our jacuzzi heater, well, it was time to go back to work and try to fix that for the fourth time. And so I started to remember how this thing was put together and started to rummage through my garage in various junk collection sites around my property. What was I looking for? I was looking for one and a half inch Schedule 40 PVC pipe. And all I could find was about an eight inch section. Now also, one of the reasons and the heartbeat of being a do-it-yourself guy is I'm frugal. I'm frugal. Uh, Not so cheap that I squeak when I walk, as it was said about my father. But I'm frugal, and and so the, the smallest amount of materials I can get away with while doing the job correctly, that's my style. But when I could only find eight inches, I started to look around, where can I get scrap? Where can I get a a, a pre-cut piece? Because I don't want to purchase an entire 10-foot stick of this stuff that has recently become very expensive. So I'm at Lowe's, and I actually bought a piece and took it back. And then I'm at uh, Home Depot, and I bought a a two-foot section of this Schedule 40 inch-and-a-half pipe. And then as I'm looking at this job and I'm thinking about it and do I have enough, what needs to be replaced, I go, I'm going to need a little bit more. So I'm up at Ace Hardware and I buy another two and a half foot section just trying to scrimp by while doing the job correctly. And finally, with consulting a pool guy or two or three and understanding what I was up against and why I couldn't thread seal these threads I finally got it all together, and it worked. No leaks, finally. And then I started to think, do I have anything that I can take back for credit? Unfortunately, the one section, the two-foot section that I bought from Home Depot, by the end, I had to borrow a good little chunk of it, so this is all I got left. I can't take it back. And I was bummed. This could have been four bucks back in my wallet. Four bucks. And then it happened this last Thursday. The project's in the rearview mirror, like by several days. And I'm walking through the mudroom from my house to the garage to get in my truck and come here to work. And that's when it catches my eye. Exactly where I put it, 11 months ago, over nine feet. I, I couldn't take this back because I took off about eight inches. And there it is in the place where I put it that I kind of had this 
feeling like I should look some more, but no, I've looked. It's, it's hidden in plain sight. Everything I, I, I needed and more was right there in front of me the whole time. I've walked past it dozens, dozens and dozens of times since I knew I had to replumb this project, and yet there I am at multiple stores going, you got any leftover? You got any stuff you can give me? You got any spare pieces? And I'm bargaining, and what can I buy? What can I get away with? Yeah, there you see it. There, it was right there. It's the door to the garage. It stays closed. It's not like it's open and hiding. I'm walking past it every day, looking for scrap, rummaging, begging, borrowing. It's right there in plain view. A poverty mentality. So frugal, I couldn't just acknowledge. There it is. And isn't it so much like us when it comes to our daily need for grace? our daily need for God's power in our life, that we are misers, we are people that are digging around in scrap heaps and trying to beg, borrow, and steal, thinking it's not gonna be enough, I'm not gonna make it, I don't have enough, God is holding out on me. And yet all along he's going, my entire treasure room is open to you. And right here, right now, right here, right now, everything you truly want Everything you really need is instantly available because his divine power has made it so. This, I believe, is at the very heart, very heart of 2 Peter. And we get to delve into that for 15 weeks starting right now. Now, get to lay the foundation. And man, I really am glad that you're here today. I'm really glad you're joining us online because this is really gonna lay the foundation. This is a very, very unique New Testament book. In fact, to let you know, it is the number one most disputed in the Christian canon. Of the 66 books of the Bible, this is the number one most disputed. This was the last one that was affirmed and, and received into the canon. It wasn't finally agreed upon until late in the fourth century. So the Council of Laodicea, 372 AD. And then again, the Council of Carthage in 392 AD. Jerome included it in the Latin Vulgate. Augustine embraced it. But there were other men in the ancient church that said, Where, where'd this come from? Who wrote this? Do we know that for sure? Why? Because even though it begins with the, the names, his earth-given name and his Jesus-given name, Simon Peter, there were individuals, unscrupulous individuals in the first century that would steal a name, write something, but they would do it in order to introduce their heresy or to expand their readership. So someone could have written this and attached his name to it, and then slipped it in and tried to get famous. Like, I don't need to be known. I just want to know that my book got out there. And so that could happen, and that did, in fact, happen. And we actually know those kinds of writings, and there's a reason why they are not in the New Testament canon. 
Why? Because the ancient church took the scriptures seriously. So it's no mystery that they took it seriously. Is this really from Peter or not? And in the end, it was received. But how do we know? What did they do? What what was important? First of all, I'm going to just say this. It includes his name. So it is either from him or an outright lie. We don't have a middle ground, lukewarm. This is kind of a gray area. It's kind of devotional quality. It's either scripture or it's a fabricated lie. So that's first of all that that there's no middle ground for this. Secondly are the ancient tests of canonicity. I want to walk those through with you. If you don't know how New Testament books were received or, or acknowledged the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit, how did the ancient church know what books belonged as scripture and what were just nice thoughts or letters or uh, commentaries or devotional things? So here's the three tests that Second Peter eventually passed. Number one, there's not a shred of anti-biblical heresy found in 2 Peter. And if it was a fabrication, we could expect to see things that are like, oh, that, that doesn't match. So that's the first test of canonicity that there's not error that you can detect. Secondly, it actually adds to and enriches our understanding. That's the second test for canonicity. It can't be contradictory, but it also cannot just be a carbon copy. And then thirdly, it's got to be accepted over time by all the churches, not just the original recipients. Because over time, individual Christians and churches would would begin to look at it and use it, and various Christians would identify the ring of Holy Spirit-inspired truth. So know that this letter passed those three tests. Next is the direct real-life interaction, history, that is recorded from Peter's pen in 2 Peter. I got five things right off the bat. First off, the writer claims to be among the 12 apostles in two places, chapter 1, verse 1, and then chapter 3, verse 2. So he's one of the apostles. Secondly, he speaks in detail as an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus of Nazareth on Mount Hermon. Speaks very clearly, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Number three, Peter's death was foretold by Jesus himself in John's gospel. Uh, John 21 Verse 19, Peter says this in in chapter 1, verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Christ made clear to me. That's Peter. That's Peter's voice. Number four, Peter had a deep commitment after denying Jesus and being restored. And Jesus says, you love me? Feed my sheep. You love me? Feed my lambs. You love me? Feed my sheep. And at that point, Peter goes, okay, okay, okay. I'm in. And this is what we read in chapter 1, verse 12 through 13 and 15. I intend always to remind you of these qualities 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall these things. Why? Because Jesus told him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And so this is the impassioned heart of a pastor saying, I've got to be faithful to my Lord and Savior. He gave me a very clear mandate and this is driving him, we think that he was working with John Mark. John Mark was his sidekick, and Peter, and you can see this by textual criticism, Peter was working with John Mark on his gospel. And he was working with John Mark, you really need to to author this, write this down, Holy Spirit working through John Mark, And, and Peter is right there, it actually matches some of Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, the outline of Mark's gospel. And so we see these fingerprints and this interaction going on in, in Peter's intensity in making sure that it's written down and making sure to remind them, and that occurs throughout the three chapters of Second Peter. And then finally, he knows the apostle Paul as a dear brother. That's in chapter three. Our dear brother, Paul. And yes, they had some friction at times, but in Christ, we make up for our disagreements, don't we? We reconcile, and don't you think that Paul and Peter would have reconciled if they're true followers of Jesus? Yeah, so it's beautiful. This is the end of Peter's life, and he's saying, my dear brother, Paul. So his fingerprints and his voice are all over it. So what's, what's, what are the possibilities, the differences, the difference of style, because this is where scholars like say, look, it's so different than First Peter. Why might that be? First off is different secretaries. We know that First Peter was actually penned, Paul uh, or, or Peter um, working with a secretary, a scribe. And the, the scribe for First Peter was Sylvanius. So I just got my dissertation finished being edited. Um, I need to read through it because I know my editor changed some things to make it clearer. And this would occur even with the scriptures. This isn't just Peter writing down 1 Peter. Well, 2 Peter, he did not have Sylvanius. He either had John Mark, as previously mentioned, or Peter wrote this one in his own hand, which would change some of the flavor of speech that he actually used. Secondly, Peter would be murdered a few months after this letter was finished and sent. We, we believe that second, first Peter was written in 63, 64, 63, AD. And it's just before the Neronian persecution. And uh, we know this is, this is right before his death by his own words in second Peter. This would place the writing of this 67 to 68. Much has happened in the last four to five years. And that brings me to number three. Persecution is now normal. Fiery persecution is now normal for the church, and the church has been forced underground. This actually begins to explain why there's not as broad of a circulation or as much commentary written on 2 Peter from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century theologians. is because the church was quashed. It was forced underground, and we get that idea from 1 Peter and history. And so this letter... Peter's not around to promote it, to to say, hey, I did write that. You can't check it. He got murdered because of his beliefs found in 1 and 2 Peter. 
History tells us that he was crucified with his wife, but for him, he was crucified upside down just outside Rome by Nero himself. And he cannot, he cannot come back and say, yeah, I did write that. You can't ask him. And circulation is quashed because Christianity's been pushed underground. And here's actually one of the takeaways and the differences between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And this is why we go, wow, this is so timely for us, Journey Church. Anyone who's watching us, do you see what's going on in the world? Did, were you here for 1 Peter? Did you get that sense like, wow, 2,000 years later, we're living 1 Peter. Why? What was 1 Peter? The roaring lion is coming from outside to shut you down. Persecution. You're now marginalized. You're weirdos. You're idiots. The roaring lion of 1 Peter prowling about seeking someone to devour. Four years later, Christianity, while underground, is thriving. You follow? The roaring lion failed. But what the roaring lion could not do with persecution from the outside, he will now attempt to do as a ravaging wolf from the inside. Did you catch it? What the roaring lion could not do with persecution from the outside, four years later, he will try to do as a ravaging wolf from the inside. The Apostle Paul, when he was in Acts chapter 20, he's meeting with the Ephesian elders and he's heading to Jerusalem where he will be arrested and shipped off to Rome. And he warns the elders in Ephesus with this warning, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That is not external persecution that the Apostle Paul was prophesying. That was internal heresy in people. If you think 1 Peter and Christianity, the potential of Christianity in an open proclamation of, of scriptural truths being labeled as hate speech from outside, if you think that's dangerous and that, well, in America, we call it First Amendment free speech, and you go, hey, that is absolutely under fire. It's called cancel culture. And we made that statement in First Peter, hey, we're gonna be honest, we're gonna be very loving, but we come under the authority of the word of God. This is not made up stuff that we, that we say, hey, well, it's my opinion that this is true. We actually come under the clear teaching of scripture, and that could, in fact, become illegal and labeled hate speech. But here's what's even more dangerous. The great falling away because of heresies and heretics that we are witnessing in real time. Josh Harris. As a youth pastor, I promoted his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Left the faith. Audrey Assad, Christian musician, four weeks ago. I'm no longer a Christian. Left the faith. Jen Hatmaker, you know the name? Openly affirming, I've left the faith. That was all toxic. Church sucks. I'm free. You should follow me. And so, so, so many more. A huge portion of our children just embracing and imbibing a kind of uh, 
you know, anything goes sexuality and I'm Christian. Openly affirming LGBTQ plus and saying, yeah, and Jesus loves everyone. And that's, that's not really what the Bible meant. If you think the persecution from outside was bad, wait until you see the heresies and the falling away that takes place from within. And this is the mood of what is taking place in 2 Peter. Three movements that we've mentioned, three key words, knowledge, truth, and promise. Let me nuance those a bit, and then let's dig into our our key verse um, to wrap things up. Knowledge, in chapter 1, it is offered It is embraced, to be embraced, it is to be engaged, it is to be solidified and assured. Chapter two, truth, it is being manipulated, abused, mocked, contradicted, and it will be judged. And then chapter three, promise, it is predicted, it is ensured, it is to be believed, it is to be heeded, it will stabilize and bless you. And that's the whole book in a nutshell. But let's go back to the heartbeat, the heartbeat, which I believe is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him, of God and of Jesus our Lord, him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Why is this so important? Two things. Number one, life is so hard. Every single decade of your life, you're going to encounter an entirely different set of difficulties, whether you're a Christian or not. Every single decade, my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, and now my 50s, very unique and different They really don't correlate one to another. You think, I'm really strong in the Lord. Oh, have fun with that attitude because the 30s are coming. And you feel like I survived the 30s. I'm still a Christian. I'm I'm feeling like I'm I'm mastering these kinds of feelings and thoughts and relational struggles. I think I can do this. And then the 40s come. And there's times and places where you want to say these words, dear God, I cannot do this any longer. You ever feel that? Oh, I can't do it, Lord. And because of what's written here in 2 Peter, that is a flat out lie. You feel like it's true. You're frustrated, you're hurt, you're broken, you're disappointed, you're jaded. But you cannot say, I cannot do this any longer. God says, you're a liar. Given everything pertaining to life and godliness, you can do this. Here's the second thing. There will always be mystics and gurus, false prophets that know more than you, that have more power than you, that meet with God more than you, that hear from God more than you. In fact, they hear from God for you, and what they hear from God for you is actually has more authority than the word of God itself. And guess what? They've been here. They've been in this church. They've been in the other churches that you've been at. They're in the church of American churches around the world. 
false prophets that actually know more than you and believe themselves to be superior to you and you must follow and learn from them. And it's just not true. Okay, now there's an error that goes, I don't need anyone. And there's the other error. Oh, you gotta meet this one. You, have you ever heard from him? Have you ever listened to his sermon? Have you ever sat at her feet? She knows. And anytime I hear that, I go, uh-oh, here we go. Here we go. We call it secret sauce. Oh, you know the secret sauce. Secret sauce to marriage. Secret sauce to ch- child rearing. Secret sauce to godliness. Secret sauce to power. Secret sauce that they know you must buy their book, you must listen to their podcast. And this is, Peter himself is contradicting and standing against that kind of attitude in the first century church, saying that's nonsense, nonsense. You can do it, and you do not need a prophet or guru that says, I know more than you. Let's just take a quick look at the first three verses, okay? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I love it because he bookends this, says, yeah, I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. I met Jesus, but I'm a doulos. You know what that was? That was a boot-licking slave. And so there's a great humility with him saying, yep, I, I met him. I'm sent by him. I'm sent by him, but I'm a servant. He goes on to say, to those who have obtained, it's a great word in the Greek, it means to obtain by lottery, casting lots. God chose you. Like roll the dice, and you, if you have obtained salvation, you hit the jackpot. You won the lottery. God chose you, you did not choose him. First and foremost, you obtained it by lot. God did this thing, divine allotment. And he goes, to those who have obtained a faith, and then I love this, of equal standing. Did you see that? Paul is an apostle. He's writing scripture. And he goes, and you all, normal, run-of-the-mill, everyday Christians, you have a faith of equal standing. Isotimon, same honor, same value. There's no such thing as a super Christian. There's just a normal, born-again child of God. Those who obtain a faith of equal standing with ours. And then here's how, by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Interesting, it happens two times in the first two verses. These are not two individuals or two members of the Godhead. Two modifiers, one person. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful teaching that Jesus was not just a powerful prophet. He was God incarnate. And that's what it says here. And then he says, and this is a pastor's heart, but it includes something that we should pay attention to. We'll come back to this, but may grace and peace be multiplied. May grace and peace be multiplied. That's a pastor's heart. I want you to experience grace and peace so much. May it be multiplied. And then here's how. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, And then he goes into our key verse, his divine power, the very thing that I want for you, and by the way, they're connected this way, the very thing that I want for you to have grace and peace in your life, 
his divine power has actually granted. That's how this is written. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then the same formula, how? Through the knowledge, there's our key word. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You have a repeated pattern here in verse two and three. And clearly explained in verse three that sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. And I wanna give you a couple of just fill in the blanks to help us grasp this. Here's the first fill in the blank. Number one, all that I truly want. Yes, I have wayward desires. Yes, I have dreams and hopes and all these things. But what I really want is him. True? Even your greatest joy and fulfillment and fantasy ultimately is a thinly veiled shadow of him Self. So a great vacation, a great adventure, a great romance, all of those are good gifts that reflect what you really want. All that I truly want, and then just add this, and need, and need, what I really need for my life and for godliness, has already been freely given. Quick word studies, one, life is not bios, like just physical, biological life, but Zoe, this is essential, essential, absolute, moral, physical, ethical, spiritual, eternal life. Zoe, this is the life that is spoken of in John chapter one, verse four, where it says, in him was Zoe, self-existent, perfect life. And this is what we are told that his divine power has granted us all things pertaining to Zoe. First, first thing that's ours. Secondly is life and godliness, eusebia. And it's actually a compound word of the Greek. It means well or good and worship. Like a, a Godward life, a, a genuine goodness that everything we need pertaining to Zoe and rightly ordered worship of my life has already been granted to us. The word for granted. Uh, wow, this is a beautiful word. Freely bestowed. Greek scholar Tra- Strachan said, a large-handed generosity. That God is not just being miserly like, here, you'll get by. You got enough pipe just to fix it. He's going, oh no, let me get you the 10-foot uncut piece Here you go. Will this be enough, Jimbo? Yeah, Lord, I think this will be enough. Okay? It's been freely given, freely bestowed. This same formula showed up in in verse 2, and there's two virtues mentioned in verse 2 that directly correspond to life and godliness. So if I could just read that. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. May, this is pastor's heart, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. An abundance freely bestowed, exponential. The word is a cognate, meaning it sounds like, in the Greek, sounds like our word plethora. It's where we get the word plethora from. That it's freely be multiplied. It's a plethora of grace and mercy. That these two words, grace, charis, that which affords pleasure, delight, and sweetness, and charm. Uh, uh, forgiveness we, we associate with grace, not being condemned, but being loved and set free from that, that agitation of spirit. Grace, it's a gift to us. 
that we should not only receive it, but feel it, and then offer it to others. You need a little bit of that? And then grace, and then peace, irene. And this word, irene, is a state of tranquility. An absence of war, peace between individuals, an absence of conflict, an inward calmness of heart. Here's the question. Can you use a little zoe today? Want a little bit more zoe? How about a little more charis? A little more grace? How about uh, a little more godliness? Eusebia. How about irene? Anyone need some peace within? Because they've been freely given. They've been multiplied to us already. Not just barely enough, but freely bestowed. Here's the second thing, fill in the blank. Knowledge. And if you see how it's, it's italicized, there's a reason. Knowledge of Jesus confers life and godliness and multiplies grace and peace in my heart. That's what these two verses say. This is a very interesting word for knowledge. The normal Greek word is gnosis. If you want to throw in the, the G, gnosis, because that's how it's, it's kind of a guttural, guttural well, I can't even say it, guttural kind of gnosis, all right? But um, that word has been hijacked by the Gnostics. Who were the Gnostics? The Gnostics were the super Christians. The special Christians, the deeper Christians, the more powerful Christians. They've come in with hidden secret knowledge. They're smarter than you. They know the Bible more than you and extra biblical literature and teachings. They have hidden information. You're too stupid. You're too unspiritual. You're a second-class Christian. What you really need to do is buy their book. Those are the Gnostics. First century, 21st century. So Peter has lost that word gnosis in the Greek. So he adds a preposition to it, epi. It means full. And it is absolutely in reaction to the Gnostics. So four times in his letter, shows up only 20 times in all of the New Testament, epinosis. And in these verses, this is what he is talking about, epinosis, a full knowledge. They say they have information, data, theology, learning. You must go learn from them because they know more. And Peter goes, no, that's not what you need. You need epinosis. What is epinosis as compared to gnosis? Gnosis pertains to the mind. In its knowledge and logic, and you're smart, and you know the Bible inwards and out, and you can use it to fight, and you can win. Information in your brain. Epinosis is knowledge that you actually step into and live. It is relational. It is experiential. It is incarnational. It is... It, doesn't just have to do with your mind and knowing information. It actually transforms your heart and it changes the path of your life. Epinosis. 
So these qualities that we're looking for, that we go, we got a job to do. I don't feel like I have enough, and God says, nonsense. Grace, you need grace. You need peace. You need life, Zoe. You need godliness. More than you could ever ask for, and here's where it's found. The formula is the same in verse 2 and in verse 3. It's found in the epinosis of Christ And it's found in verse 3, through the epinosis of Christ. That epinosis, full knowledge, is the conduit. It is the pipeline of these powerful virtues, these life-changing virtues. Epinosis, full knowledge, an experience in your life, not just so you can pass a theology exam, not so you can win a theology argument, but so that you can actually experience an embodied truth in your life that changes you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Epinosis. Here's our our takeaway for this morning. Bottom line. Bottom line. It's a big bottom line, but I, I had to hit like the verse and the theme and the whole book. So here we go. Here we go. Everything we truly want and need everything we could possibly need to get it done is available right now through the epinosis, full knowledge, experiential, relational, full life knowledge of God the Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the takeaway today. Please, don't be like me. Walking past all that I need and more day after day, totally blind. It's right in front of our face and totally blind. Don't do that. Don't miss it. Don't neglect it. Don't contradict it or mock it. That's chapters one, two, and three. But what are we to do with the epinosis, this relationship that's available to each one of us? We are to receive it, engage it, solidify it in our life, and live it until he returns. Can I give you five, four quick takeaways? Number one, Journey Church, be on guard for those who communicate to you that they are spiritually superior. That's just a red flag every time. I'm 52, what do I know? Born in the church and nursed on hymns, I've watched it my whole life. Anyone that claims spiritual superiority, beware. You do not need a guru. You need Jesus. Here's number two. Be leery of newfangled, deeper, more mysterious, secret insights, regardless of the person, okay? Be leery of newfangled, deeper, more mysterious insights. You know what, God's, I call this the, the, what, what is called the perspicuity of Scripture. You know what that means? It's understandable. You can read the Bible, and you can know Christ and hear his voice by reading the Bible yourself. Okay, you don't need the guru or the book next to the Bible. Throw it away. Go to the Bible. Number three, never say, I'm not spiritual enough. I don't know enough. Nonsense. You got it all already. And number four, never say, I can't do this anymore. I quit. Why? God says, you're a liar. 
you're just quitting. I've given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. Let's pray, Lord God, oh, that we would trust you and believe you and claim, even when it gets messy and ucky and, and difficult, God, we need you. We look to you. We love you. Thank you for your amazing grace and kindness to us. We pray in Jesus' name together.